in our study of the yoga of works, we have arrived at a definitive conclusion that the lower nature which normally governs our life has to be surrendered to the master of our being so that it may be gradually transmuted into the higher nature which is the self-projection of the Lord. In the world a perfect harmonious relation with one's nature is said to be the ideal condition for successful work. But our aim is not to adjust ourselves with nature as it is, but to exceed our nature as it is formed in ignorance and lay it before our Maker so that its character may be changed from human to the divine nature. Before we could do that, we must have a precise idea of what the nature is constituted. Indian thinkers and seers, after long observation and experiment, have categorized three aspects, three functionings of this nature. They have called this nature to be threefold. There is first the element of what is called in Indian parlance tamas, the principle of inertia the principle of immobility which translates itself into the qualities of darkness, obscurity and ignorance. There is next the principle of kinesis, of dynamism, of movement which translates itself into the quality of passion, force, adventure. There is third, the principle of equilibrium, which translates itself into the qualities of light, peace and enlightenment. These three qualities constituting nature are there wherever there is creation individually as also universally. It is in our reaction to the impacts of things from outside, to the impacts of external nature, that we know which part of our nature is active, which part of our nature is dominant and ruling. If to the impacts that come from outside, my reaction is one of acquiescence, unresisting 
acceptance or an uncomplaining sufferance, it means it is the third the third guna, the third quality, tamas, that is active. If, on the other hand, I react with force, with a will to seize the, the contact and utilize it as I want, or make it an occasion to impose my will on the environment, it is rajas that is active. If the impact from outside is received with a conscious, enlightened equality, assimilated as best as possible, and returned in the waves of understanding and light, then it is sattva. Nobody is entirely of one piece. All the three are present in each man, in each individual. According as this or that quality is predominant in his nature, man is said to be sattvic or rajasic or tamasic. When one starts yoga, the first step in dealing with nature is to detach oneself from this movement of nature and observe. As you observe, you can see of what quality your nature in the main is constituted. Nature is dynamic. And whatever the nature, I mean, sorry, whatever the character with which you initially start in yoga, you accept the possibility of changing that nature, of transcending that nature. If my dominant quality is one of immobility, inertia, refusal to move, refusal to enlarge, but to stay put, the obvious way for me to correct this stamp of tamas, this rule of tamas, is to awaken the rajasic element, to invite the movements of mo dynamism, to evoke forces of aspiration and movement, and put pressure on the tamasic elements in myself. If, on the other hand, my nature is full of turbulence, restlessness, wanting to seize things on any level of my being, if I am possessed by a desire to dominate, to rule, to aggrandize myself, the obvious way for the seeker is to stimulate the sattvic part, the understanding part, the part of enlightenment, peace and light 
equilibrium so that these turbulent elements are calmed down controlled in this process of correcting the dominance of one guna by the invocation of another it should be remembered that no one quality is always ruling if for instance as a measure of yogic discipline to quieten our restless vital to control our meandering mind mind we impose a stillness a quietness there is always a tendency with the subsidence of the rajas for the tamas to rise from below with the stillness that is being established or worked out there is a strong tendency for sleep to creep in where rajas is suppressed put under tamas comes up similarly <coughs> if in our desire to get out of the ignorant obscure moments of tamas we activate the dynamic part in us and let ourselves entirely in its hands there is always the possibility of rushing of finding ourselves rushing about in ignorance ultimately coming to nothing it is there that the sattva the sattvic element has to be brought in and rajas to be enlightened so there is always out of necessity a combination to be affected according to the needs of the situation between sattva and rajas or between rajas and tamas in whichever way the two combinations are made to free ourselves from the hold of the third as one observes one finds that all these three qualities center themselves round the ego that is why sri aurobindo points out that the ego functions at different levels in different aspects in different roles different guises there is what is called the tamasic ego first the ego which wallows in darkness in its darkness in the very immobility and inability of the nature to move and progress there is some part which stays satisfied it prides itself that something is inert i will not accept any call to progress i am stable this attachment to stability 
refusal to move, tendency to stick to darkness and obscurity, especially in the form of depression, that is called the tamasic ego. One of the first impediments in the way of the seeker when he takes up yoga, which calls for the change of nature, is this challenge of depression. For whatever reason, for no reason at times, there is a mental depression. Apparently, it is due to some cause, external cause, an inner disappointment perhaps, whatever it is, but left to itself, the depression passes. But there is what is called the tamasic ego, which is attached to this depression. However much difficult it is to believe in the phenomena, it is a fact that there is something in our tamasic nature which inwardly delights in having depression, in sticking to it, in suffering, in complaining, in refusing to take measures that will dissipate the depression. The hold up in sadhana is at any rate in the first stages very much due to this dominance of the tamasic ego. There is then the rajasic ego, the ego of the vital, which wants to assert itself, to dominate whatever little surroundings or environments it has, it wants to rule, it wants to be the first. It is not satisfied unless it extends its rule, it extends its sway, what is called aggrandizement. This aggrandizement may be in the domain of the mind, the imposition of ideas or imposition of power, of rule in day-to-day -day life or even a physical possession. This is called the rajasic ego. Now the rajasic ego, unlike the tamasic ego, is very easy to recognize especially when it is in others. <laughs> but there is a third ego, which is very subtle. It is the sattvic ego. The man who cultivates the arts of the mind, who acquires knowledge, who has a sense of poise, who has an entry into equality, who can feel the light of knowledge, however distant, he develops an ego of the sattvic mind. He feels the, the ego of the sattva is that he clings to the particular formulation of knowledge that he has acquired. He feels, 
he proclaims that his is the truth, yours is not. Some are clever, they don't proclaim loudly, but they are convinced that their ideas, their formation in the mind, they are the truth and they become prisoners of their ideas, prisoners of their half-knowledge. They do not progress. It is easy enough for nature to give a kick to the tamasic ego, to give a shock to the rajasic ego and make them progress. But it is extremely difficult for a man of mental ego of the sattvic ego, the ego of knowledge, to progress. Very, very often, most philosophers, people who speculate, build systems of philosophy, when they refuse to look beyond their walls, when they close the windows of their minds, they become possessed of this sattvic ego. And then, as we observe, had occasion to observe sometime earlier, there is what Sherwindo and the mother call the spiritual ego. When one touches even a fragment of the higher consciousness and is stimulated, receives in oneself some ingression of the higher being, the higher influence, the higher force, there is always a tendency to feel one has arrived. One is superior to all the rest. One feels kindly and one likes to feel kindly. <laughs> one feels these are all unfortunate poor people who need my help. It is incumbent upon me to go to them, to lead them, to make them my disciples, to give them my, the benefit of my guidance. This pride of piety, as it is called, the egoism of spirituality is the worst. Worst because when one claims to be open to light, to be in possession of a higher consciousness and to allow the play of ego even at that stage is all the more inexcusable for one who is still in the, still in the belt of ignorance and darkness and obscurity. Ego is perhaps natural, but it is absolutely unnatural <coughs> in a spiritual being or a seeker who has imbibed even something of the spiritual consciousness. Now these three qualities spread all over our being, organizing themselves around the ego at different levels. These have to be transcended. And transcended they can be because all the three qualities are not real 
original forms of their principles. Just as matter, life and mind are inverted projections of existence, consciousness and force, similarly these three gunas, sattva, rajas, tamas, are projections of three higher and spiritual qualities which in their involution in ignorance have taken this form. What is called tamas, the principle or the force of inertia and immobility is really a deformation of what is above on the higher heights of the being, tranquility, stability, unchanging, immutable stability. What is called the force of kinesis is a projection of the consciousness force radiating the truth behind, the light of the truth behind. And what is called sattva, the force of equilibrium, is the light of the knowledge of, the, the light of the truth knowledge, where everything undisturbed peace and immovable certainty of knowledge. These three lower gunas, as they are surrendered to the master of our being and his puissance, the Shakti, they are gradually transmitted into their divine higher equivalents. Incidentally, this pervasion of the three qualities of Sattva, Rajas and Tamas is described in the Gita as far as it pertains to our food, to sacrifice, sadhana. In the 17th chapter, it is described The Gita speaks in terms that were in vogue during the epic age. When it speaks of sacrifice, it means 
not the so much the physical act of sacrifice but the inner act of adoration and worship it says sattvic men offer sacrifice to the gods the rajasic to the keepers of wealth and rakshasic forces the others the tamasic offer the sacrifice <coughs> to elemental powers and grosser spirits these are the entities supernatural entities on the lower levels of the higher hemisphere the men who perform violent austerities with arrogance and egoism impelled by the force of the desires and passions men of unripe minds tormenting the aggre ag aggregated elements forming the body and troubling me also seated in the body know these to be asuric in their resolves asuric means perverted rajasic the food also which is dear to each is of triple character as also sacrifice ascesis and giving here thou the distinction of these the sattvic temperament in the mental and physical body turns naturally to the things that increase the life increase the inner and outer strength nourish at once the mental vital and physical force and increase the pleasure and satisfaction and happy condition of mind and life and body all that is succulent and soft and firm and satisfying the rajasic temperament prefers naturally the food that is violently sour pungent hot acrid rough and strong and burning the elements that increase ill health and the distempers of the mind and body the tamasic temperament takes a perverse pleasure in cold impure stale rotten or tasteless food or even accepts like the animals the remnants half eaten by others now regarding the sacrifice the sacrifice which is offered by men without desire for personal fruit which is executed according to the right principle and with the mind concentrated on the idea of the thing to be done as a sacrifice that is sattvic the sacrifice offered with a view to the personal fruit and also for ostentation know that to be of rajasic nature sacrifice not performed according without the mantra without gifts empty of faith that means mechanical mechanical prayers he is said to be tamasic worship given to the godhead to the spiritual guide to the wise cleanness candid dealing sexual purity and avoidance of killing and injury to others are called the ascesis of the body speech causing no trouble to others 
true, kind and beneficial, the study of scripture are called the ascesis of speech. A clear and calm gladness of mind, gentleness, silence, self-control, the purifying of the whole temperament, this is called the ascesis of the mind. There is even a classification of gifts giving to others, says the sattvic way of giving is to do it for the sake of the giving and the beneficence and to one who does no benefit in return. And it is to bestow in the right conditions of time and place and on the right recipient who is worthy or to whom the gift can be really helpful. The rajasic kind of giving is that which is done with unwillingness or violence to oneself or with a personal and egoistic object or in the hope of a return of some kind. The tamasic gift is offered with no consideration of the right conditions of time, place and object. It is offered without regard for the feelings of the recipients and despised by him even in the acceptance. This is the all-pervading nature of the triple quality of, na of lower nature, what we call in Indian terms prakriti. One has to cultivate higher gunas, transmute the lower into the next higher, arrive at a state by detachment, by cultivation of equality, indifference, a stoic endurance, freed from the domination of the gunas. This is called in sadhana freedom from the gunas. But freedom from the gunas is not the final aim. Freedom from the gunas is only the indispensable step for the next step, which is transcendence above the gunas. Get o to get over it, not to stay behind, but to get over the gunas with a view to control them, to force them to change, to serve as vehicles for the higher consciousness. These three qualities of equilibrium, kinesis and stability. When they function in terms of the higher consciousness. They are great assets for the manifestation that is far ahead. In our next talk, we shall take up the subject of the master of our... Master of the work. Master of the work.
No. <laughs> we were talking of food, sattvic, tamasic, rajasic. That puts me in mind of the unusual attention that is being paid to food for the last few days in this place and what the mother said today when I placed before her the position, the fact it is better all of us know where we are. I told mother that so far the kitchen here is serving vegetarian food with eggs twice or thrice a week for its protein value. Some friends have a feeling that meat and fish should be added to the menu because that would supply protein even in lesser quantities of food. I told mother of these two feelings and especially that the position of those who have desired a change. They had asked me to tell mother that it is not out of desire that they are asking for the change of food addition of meat and fish, but purely from the point of view of the addition of protein with the, in the, with the minimum quality of intake, with the minimum quantity of intake. And that if mother felt that protein in that form is not necessary, they would abide by her decision. Mother thought for a while, asked what is the number of the people who are taking food here and all that. And she has for the time being decided to wait for a little while till the number of the inmates here increases sufficiently enough to warrant the starting of two kitchens. Also, till the financial resources improve to admit the construction of another kitchen. And when two kitchens can be set going, the needs of all will be met. One can be vegetarian as it is at present, 
the other can have in a different way. So that settles the question for the time being till these two conditions are fulfilled. To come to some lighter aspect of life, I brought a few pages of type matter concerning an encounter that I had last week with a Japanese visitor and I thought you would be interested, at any rate amused at a report. He came to interview me on behalf of an important paper which I was told is equivalent in Japan to the New York Times in the States. I received him gladly at my place and it took an hour before he left. It was suggested thereafter by my friends that I could, we do not know how he is going to report, but uh, we could rec keep some record, written record. I was taken up with the idea and it was also suggested by friends in the office where number of visitors come and put all kinds of questions that some sort of record should be maintained. And then ultimately the idea took firm shape that the recording could be kept under the title of Dialogues and Perspectives with the dates and uh, subjects. The first in the series concerns this uh, interview with the Japanese gentleman. With your indulgence, I would like to read out very rapidly what happened. He was a Japanese journalist representing an important paper in his country. He had asked to see me and I received him last evening. He was very business-like and straight away explained to me why he was in India. While talking, he kept a small machine, which I presumed to be a tape recorder on the table, but he did not set the machine ready with the mic. As I was saying, he spoke of the purpose that brought him to India. Japan, he said, had made great economic recovery, and the people had become more and more materialist in their outlook. Some of the thinking men in his country were alarmed at this turn of events and wanted to do something to correct the balance by introducing some spiritual catalyst in the society. Naturally, they turned to India, famed for her spirituality, and he had been sent to this country to, stu to study the role that spirituality plays in the life of our people. Its impact on their thinking and living. His first halt, he pointed out, was at Rishikesh, where there are so many ashrams at the foot of the Himalayas. He even stayed in one well-known ashram and participated in the daily life of the monks there. After completing his homework, he arrived at Pondicherry, where, to his utter bewilderment, 
everything was totally different. And that was his first question. He said, I had thought that all ashrams would be the same as spirituality is one. But I found everything here in Pondicherry ashram, the very opposite of things in the Rishikesh ashram. I am confused. Would you kindly explain? Answer. Most of the ashrams in India represent, each in its own way, the traditional spirituality in India during the last thousand years or so. This tradition, which has resulted in the flight of spirituality from life to retreats, got formed during the declining curve of the Indian civilization. That was not the genuine and original tradition of this land. The tradition in the age of the Vedas, the Upanishads and the epics took life as it is and sought to uplift it Godward, draw the full meaning of God in this his creation. This spirit, however, began to fail in the inevitable period of the decline of Indian life energy after a long period of surging vitality. Old spirituality represented in the ashrams you have visited calls upon man to reject the world as a snare and to withdraw into the purer heights of the spirit or the depths of the self. Consequently, there is in them an ascetic denial of life, a barrenness. Sri Aurobindo gives a new turn to the spiritual life. Rather, he restores to it its original comprehensive nature. He regards the world as real, as real as God himself, a purposive creation of God. And man is on earth to manifest the divinity of God in the life of the world. In other words, it is the object of life to turn existence into a manifestation of the divine values of beauty, power, harmony, love. That is to say, to raise life to its optimum value. That is why we find everything in our ashram geared to a dynamic life activity. Necessarily, the motive force is different. We seek not only to perfect ourselves spiritually, but side by side to infuse our spiritual gains into the different fields of life, which, as you would have seen, are amply represented in the life of our community. The whole perspective is different, and naturally, the organization of things here is different. He says, I understand. When do you think you'll be able to complete this project? <laughs> In the very nature of things, there is no time limit. Each step foot forward is a step gained. We are content to do our best individually and collectively without caring for the period of time that may be needed. How many members can this ashram contain? There is no such limit. From about 20 in 1926, when the ashram was declared to be founded, the number is somewhere around 1,500 today in 1972. The number increases as seekers join. How do they join? What are the conditions? Can anyone join this ashram? 
Only those who have a call for this life are considered for admission here. In the beginning, such people are allowed to stay at their own expense on a sort of trial basis. We have opportunity to study them and they in turn can see for themselves how far they can fit into this life. It is only after this period is over that definitive decisions are taken. Then anybody may want to join, but it is not easy for anyone and everyone to stay here. You know, there are certain conditions to be observed. <clears throat> what are they? I am interested. There is no sex. No sex? Why not? Sex also is created by God and it should be accepted as part of God's life. After all, your gods also enjoy sex, as shown beautifully in Khajurao and other places. It is wonderful. Why do you ban sex? <laughs> that is the first time I was asked this point-blank question in my life. <laughs> I told him, look here, I understand what you say. It is all right as far as normal life in the world is concerned. Here, we are primarily concerned with doing yoga, and no serious yoga can be done unless the fundamental physical energy of which sex energy is a concentrated expression is conserved and directed upwards for the elevation of nature. Besides, for one who does yoga and has tasted something of the inner bliss in the course of the practice of yoga, sex ceases to have attraction it normally has to the common man. For one who has touched the depths of the soul, the crudity of sex is definitely repelling. After a certain stage is reached in this discipline of self-purification as a step to self-perfection, sex drops off by itself. One does not feel that one misses anything in abstention from sex. On the other hand, the augmentation of the physical, mental and spiritual energies that one experiences make it more than worthwhile to give up the lower for the higher. Then he asked, if everyone does this kind of thing, what about the future of humanity? About that you need have no worry. <laughs> At no time will the whole of humanity take to yoga and give up sex. As in all advanced movements, it is only a microscopic minority that chooses to impose on itself this abstention from indulgence. The vast majority goes its own way in ignorance. However, he did not seem to entirely be convinced of what I said, but as a measure of prudence he nodded and passed on to the next question. <laughs> is sex out of bounds to all the devotees of the ashram? What about Oroville? Sex is given up by those who feel the need to transcend it. It is only those who are earnest about yoga that abstain from sex. As far as the township of Oroville, as it is envisaged to form itself in future is concerned, there is no such rule. Those who have not gone beyond the call of sex may go their own way. But those who are ready to exceed their lower nature and grow into the higher divine nature, 
will naturally have nothing to do with sex. In either case, there is no compulsion there. In the ashram, it is quite different. I have great respect for your master, Sri Aurobindo and the mother, but I do not understand why you look upon them as gods and hang their photographs every here and there and make a religion out of it. That is the next question. Let me tell you in the first place that we do not keep the photographs of Sri Aurobindo and the mother for worship as gods. Our relation with them is much more intimate. We love the mother. She is more than a guru to us. Sri Aurobindo is much more than a teacher for us. They are part of our life and those to whom we owe everything. They have opened our eyes and we receive a constant flow of love and grace from them. We keep their likenesses with us simply because we love them and we like to see them again and again. Each time we look at the mother's photograph, we feel a contact, an infusion in us, a renewal of the constant relation. When you love somebody, are you content with just meeting the person or with keeping only one photograph? You keep as many photographs taken on different occasions with you. You may not put them on the walls, but surely you keep them in the album, don't you? He nodded. <laughs> then he said, You have here, you said, people coming from all nationalities, all religions. Is there no conflict between, say, Hindus, Christians, etc.? None. For the simple reason that we are here not as members of any religion, but as seekers of truth. We may have been born in different religions. But once we take up the spiritual quest and join the ashram here, all religion is left behind. In fact, true spirituality begins when the bondage of religion, its separative grouping, is exceeded in one's consciousness. At this juncture, someone by my side pointed out to him that though I was a Brahmin, I no more wear the sacred thread. He looked surprised and asked, you have no caste here, neither caste nor class. We have no distinctions between the rich and the poor, between one caste and another. We believe all are born equal and should be given equal opportunities to develop. How do you avoid friction and quarrel among so many? Because ours is not a competitive society, we are all here for a serious purpose and our life constitutes a voluntary cooperative effort towards a collective striving for self-perfection. The outer life is for us a field of growth, mutual assistance and healthy interchange. How would you describe your ashram? You may say it is a kind of research project for the experiment and evolution of a new life to express a new consciousness that is coming over humanity. It is a spiritual pattern of society, a pilot project in this direction, the results of which could set the model for more communities to form themselves and function as so many pioneering units in the adventure of a happier and a newer world. At this stage he asked me to stop for a moment as the tape had to be ch changed. I was taken by surprise 
because I had not seen him setting the recorder at all. Later it dawned on me that his machine was a new gadget which did not need an external mic. Then he said, Do you believe in Shiva, Krishna and other gods? Most certainly. The universe does not consist of this physical world alone. There are other grades of existence, subtler planes of being which are occult to the normal physical eye. There are beings and powers existing in their own subtle form, participating in the cosmic life in their own way. The gods, Shiva, Krishna and others are real personalities of the divine projected for the purpose of this manifestation. This is not merely a matter of belief. Their existence can be verified by you, by anyone, provided you adopt the necessary means therefore. The gods are as real today as they were at the time when they were written about in the forms of legends and mythologies. One more question. How is it that when I see the higher way of life and comfortable arrangements for people in the ashram or in your township under construction, there is an abject contrast with the conditions of people in your neighborhood. Don't you do anything for the local populace? Now this is a question which most foreigners ask us. You should have seen Pondicherry before the ashram came into existence and now. An impartial observer would tell you how Pondicherry owes the bulk of its prosperity to the ashram. The ashram has been responsible for millions of rupees being brought from outside and expended here. If there are a thousand inmates in the ashram, nearly three thousand people from the town are employed here and support themselves in the salaries drawn. Nearly half a lakh of rupees is paid every month to labor and as much to landlords and house proprietors in the town whose lodgings have been hired for our members. I do not speak for the moment of the many indirect benefits derived by the local population from us. People who work in our establishments, whether in workshops, farms or services, are given free medical attention, encouraged and helped in educating their children and in every way improving their standard of living. In deserving cases, some employees are given the privileges of the sadhaks of the ashram. If more people from the town community have not come forward to take advantage of the institution of the ashram, it is for other reasons than our readiness to welcome them or reluctance to help them. For instance, the Christians who form a considerable section of the town are discouraged, even prohibited by the church authorities from associating themselves with the ashram. There are others who seem to think that their orthodoxy will be jeopardized by mixing with our heterodoxy for we do not follow the rituals and modes of customary in established religions. Our doors are open to all men of goodwill and higher seeking. It is for people to take advantage of the evolving spirit of harmony, aspiration for truth, service of God in the world, that are some of the characteristic features of the ashram life. Can I have your permission to photograph the common meditation this evening. It was a Thursday in the playground you wanted. I am afraid that is not possible. You will appreciate that in meditation each person is one with his maker and any outside intrusion is not welcome. This completes the report.
I do hope I will have something equally interesting next time. <laughs> I think it's too late now to have any questions. We'll reserve for the next time at the service of truth. <laughs>